audio is from St. Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St. Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. This morning's reading is taken from the first book of Samuel, chapter 18, verses 1 to 16. It can be found on page 290 of the Church Bibles. 1 Samuel, chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall, but David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. This is the word of the Lord. I want to make two introductory comments And the first one is, when I say Saul in this sermon, I mean Saul. Secondly, uh, when I say Paul, I mean Saul. I've found an unfortunate habit to say Paul when I mean Saul. I'm doing it all the time. uh, And normally I have a wife at my hand that says, Saul, you mean, not Paul. But I haven't got her here, so I'm likely to do it. Okay, but I will not mention Paul in this sermon. Every time I say it's Saul, okay. And if I do, by chance, slip into saying Paul, just sit there and look superior, all right? (laughs) And the second comment is, in the chapters of 1 Samuel, the one that we had read to us, but also the ones either side of this chapter, we often find that God behaves in a strange and sometimes quite upsetting way. He seems to be a God of military success, and a lot of people die. And he sends a bad spirit on Saul. And we wonder, what's going on here? Now, I found one very helpful comment, which I share with you. 
A helpful comment is that early Israel, and we are way back in early Israel, didn't focus on what we would call secondary causes. God did everything. Because God was behind everything. Without God, nothing would happen at all. So they, their habit, their way of speaking, was to say that God did everything. So God did this, God sent this, God did the other. If an Israelite had been with me this week, he would have said, God gave me a cold and a sore throat. Now, I don't do that because we operate in secondary causes. And what I say is, I probably caught this cold and sore throat on the train from King's Cross to Durham. Now, it does mean that sometimes there's a little bit of tension with the way 1 Samuel describes something and the way we would want to. They put it this way. We are used to putting it that way. And the secret, I think, is to read the story as it is, with God as a character in the story like anyone else. And at the same time, and alongside with that, read the story in the light of Jesus, who has given us the ultimate portrait of God's character and person. That's my two suggestions. So we hurl ourselves into one of the most gripping and revealing stories in the Bible. The narrator is a master of his craft. He is a scriptwriter who plays with our curiosity, our emotions, our moral judgment, and our desire to know more about God. And I would recommend that you read it, say, from chapter 8, start there, and go through to chapter 31, and just read it like a novel. It's fantastic. It is a mixture of Game of Thrones and Downton Abbey. What more could you want, really? And it is all about palaces and plotting and power plays, and other words beginning with P. But we're actually going to focus on two men, both kings, eventually, Saul and David. God's comment and the Bible's comment on David is that he was a man after God's own heart. What's that mean? And God says at one point about Saul, I am grieved that I made Saul king. Why would that be? And here are two questions that I hope go with us as we read. This chapter 18 catches a crucial moment in the relationship. The scales can tip one way or the other. Is this the tide in the affairs of men that leads on to glory? Or is it actually the moment when the dam cracks and all the water comes flooding through? Chapter 18 is just that chapter of balance. So let's look at Saul for a minute. He has great potential. He is head and shoulders taller than anyone else. So he looks like a king. And he hints, though, that he has a poor opinion of himself and lacks confidence. When they're looking for him, he's hiding among the baggage. And Samuel says to him, you are little in your own eyes. Now, here's a piece of raw material. That raw material could be, it could go to an impressive humility. He doesn't big himself up. Or it could go the other way. It could drive him to overcompensate and react violently against anybody that he sees 
as a competitor. There's the raw material. Which way is it going to go? Another example. He has got terrifying anger. When an Israelite city is threatened by the king of Ammon, the king of Ammon says, I will make a treaty with you. That's never good news, really. And that's the mafia saying, we must be friends. And the king of Ammon says, I'll make a treaty with you. Um, I will, though, um, gouge out of your, all your right eyes. This is an offer you really don't want to have to accept. And when Saul hears about this, he burns with anger and he cuts two bulls in pieces and sends them through the land to every single tribe of Israel and says, join me and wreak vengeance on the Ammonites or I will do what I've done to these cattle, to your cattle. And of course, they, they all join him, Will you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> He's got this amazing anger. In that anger, they take on the Ammonites and they slaughter them, it says, until the heat of the day. And at the end, you can hear the Israelites saying to one another, this is why we wanted a king. This is what you get when you have a king. So he's got anger. But the same all-consuming anger will lead him to throw a javelin at his son and to throw it several times at David. God, it says, gave Saul a new heart. But Saul still needs to look after that new heart because it is his soul it's his inner self that's on the line. And there are one or two things that happen which show that Saul really isn't the man for the job. He waits with his army at Gilgal because Samuel told him to stay there until I come. I'll be about seven days, says Samuel. And Samuel is just a little bit late, not very late, but just beyond the seven days. And Saul takes things into his own hands and says, I'll perform the sacred sacrifices that only people like Samuel are allowed to perform. And he does. He does the sacrifices. And if you'd stop Saul and say, hey, what are you doing? You know, this is the kind of thing that only priests can do. He would say something like this. Well, he was late coming, wasn't he? And the men were drifting away. And I, I'm a king. Why should I wait and hang around? I'm a king. Oh, dear. Another example. In the middle of a battle against the Philistines, just at the turning point, when Israel is about to put them all to flight... Saul utters a curse, a sacred curse. No one is to eat until we finish the job. And if anybody does eat anything, then they will be put to death. Jonathan didn't hear Saul say this. And he's hungry. And he's been fighting for quite a long time. And he eats some honey. And Saul insists that Jonathan must die. And actually, it's only a protest from the soldiers that allows Jonathan to get away with his life. So clearly Saul reckons that he has the power of life and death over people. Sacred oath, I make them all the time. It's no big deal. There are lots of other examples, I'm afraid, of Saul acting like a man who does what he wants. On his way to Carmel, he stops to set up a monument in his honor. Oh dear. 
Saul is a religious man. He knows what you have to do if you're religious, but he is not devoted. He doesn't seek a relationship with God. He, he does not address God directly. When he speaks to Samuel, he says, will you speak to the Lord your God? Interesting, what a giveaway. He seems not to pray or personally seek forgiveness. He's got an idea that religion might be necessary and religion might be useful. But where is the heart? Whenever Saul uses pious language, one commentator says, it seems as if God does not refer to a personal being, but refers to something more like an institution or a cause or an idea. Now we're beginning to see why Saul failed and how David was different. You see, Saul can use religion. He's religious, he knows how to use it. He can be at ease with religion. There are couples, quite a lot of couples, because you read about them quite a lot, and sometimes you meet them, who decide that they will attend their local church. Hooray! But they're actually doing it in order to get points so that their son or daughter can go to the local church school, which has very good exam results. Now, these people are religious, in the sense that they know how to use religion for their own ends. I only know one thing about Henry IV of Navarre. You may be an expert on Henry IV of Navarre, in which case, keep it to yourself, all right? Uh, but I do know one thing about him, so I looked him up in, in Wikipedia, and Henry IV of Navarre was a loyal Protestant king. And on the 25th of July, 1593, Henry renounced his Protestantism and converted to Catholicism in order to secure his hold on the French crown. And he's famous for one thing. This is the only thing I know about him. When somebody said, look, you've been a Protestant most of your life. Why have you suddenly become a Catholic? He said, it's a great line, Paris is worth a mass. You use religion. But we too can be easy among holy things and forget the holiness of God. Saying what's acceptable does not come from the heart, but you know that's the kind of thing you say. Going through the motions, because you know that's the kind of thing you do. And neglecting the intimate, obedient, passionate personal relationship with God. We turn to David. Remember the God, the man after God's own heart. Saul is impressed with David and he takes David onto the staff and in fact David does rather well. He ends up among the top brass in the army. He rises like a meteor through the ranks and Saul is pleased and the people are pleased and even the generals and the brigadiers are pleased. And the Bible tells us that the Lord was with David. That's the clue. The young women, and to be honest, the older women as well, are also pleased with David. In fact, if you read these 20-odd chapters, you get the impression that any woman between 17 and 52 was besotted with David. Just imagine him. I had his picture on there 
walls. And after a particular away win, when David had scored a hat-trick, the women, with their tambourines and drums and so on, make up a little ditty that they sing. And this is it. David, David, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. Now, actually, it is Saul has killed thousands, David has killed tens of thousands, but my version is much catchier than that. And actually, this is the moment when it all goes terribly wrong. That's when it happens. Saul, he doesn't quite realize it, he's at the parting of the waves. Listen to his inner voice. That wretched song that they sing, I can't get it out of my mind. What more can David get except the kingdom? There's nothing left to him now except to usurp me and become king. And he feeds on that. And the Bible says from that time onwards, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So envy, jealousy begin to corrupt Saul's soul. And the eyes which could have gazed with pleasure on David's career, because David's career was helping Saul's career. But the eyes that could have looked with pleasure on David's career now watch him narrowly and suspiciously and inventing fake news that he was a traitor and a plotter. And this moment carries the whole weight of Saul's life story. Nothing will be the same again. And when Humpty Dumpty has fallen off the wall, not all the king's horses and all the king's men can put him together again. It's such a small thing, but it opened up the dam. And the water floods through. And the rest of the story is a tragedy because Saul gives himself out to fear and suspicion and the evil eye. And in the end, God gives him up to the path that he has chosen. Often in the Bible, God endorses a person's choice. I always go back to um, Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardens his heart. I think several times, my memory says three times, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. C.S. Lewis says there's a time when God says to some people, okay, thy will be done then. And envy turns to hatred. And Saul tries to pin David against the wall with a javelin. He promotes him, but only in the hope that he will get killed in battle. He offers him his daughter, Michal, but with a price tag on her, which is designed to lead to David's death. Read it after your, after your lunch. And it goes on and on and on, a course of destruction. Now, David is a complete contrast. The Bible calls him the man after God's own heart, yet as his career goes on, the Bible recognizes that he is actually a man with blood on his hands. But the great thing about him is he is passionate for God. Time and again, we're taken back to the teenager who stood in front of this walking tank called Goliath and said, don't you dare despise the armies of the Lord. They are the armies of the living God. And by showing contempt to them... 
you show contempt for God himself. And don't you dare do that. This day I come against you in his name. And suddenly you start to feel the passion of this kid. And time again you hear that in the things that David does. He cares about God. He is passionate for God's honor. And it's interesting that he reminds us of Jesus cleansing the temple. When Jesus has finished turning over tables, driving out moneylenders, and releasing pigeons, there is a tiny little line in Mark's gospel. I think it's only in Mark's gospel. And it goes, And Jesus would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. You can imagine them coming and Jesus saying, Out. This is the house of prayer. You don't use it as a shortcut. Take all that stuff and go the long way around. You suddenly encountered. And his disciples saw all this and heard all this. And you know what they said? They quoted from the Bible and said, Zeal for God's house is consuming him. That's the disciples watching Jesus. And Jesus is passionate and zeal for God consumes David and Jesus. With all his faults, and boy, there are a lot of them, David turns again and again to his heart's love, which is almighty God. And because of this, when he does do wrong, and at one point he does a terrible wrong, David goes straight away to pour out his soul to God face to face. David approaches God directly for forgiveness. Saul never does. David has a keen sense of Saul as, of, of God as a dynamic presence. He pleads with God because for him, God is his priceless treasure. That's why he's the man after God's heart. Uh, Joseph Heller wrote Catch-22. Uh, and even people who haven't read the book uh, know the phrase Catch-22. And recently Catch-22 was turned into a, a television series, wasn't it, in August. But he actually wrote another book called God Knows, which is about the life of David. And no one's ever read that, and I can't find it anywhere. But I read it once a long time ago. And it's a story of David told from within David's mind. And at the end of the novel, Heller deals with David's last days. David, you might remember, as an old man, is, is dying and cannot get warm. And they search for a young woman who will come into bed with him and will hug him and keep him warm. And they find a woman. The palace authorities do it. And Heller uses this as the last paragraph of the novel, as I remember it. And David says... I am dying. I cannot get warm. And they give me a girl. And I want my God. I think Heller's got it absolutely right. David had this passion for God. Okay, it's a big book, 1 Samuel. Uh, and it's a story, this one, that touches us uh, closely. Uh, it, this story tells us that we've been given a particular character and personality. We've been given gifts and also faults. And there is a responsibility on us 
to use them for good and not evil. Secondly, this story tells us to watch what God is doing and what he wants of us and never to think that we can act as if we were little gods. Never to think that we can use holy things as if they were our personal slot machine. And thirdly, it tells us constantly to seek that inner, passionate friendship with the personal God who loves us and wants us to be his friends. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.